And welcome to Bell Equipment's Curse. I'm Steve Sutherland along with my co-host Julian Amarante. Uh, today what we have for you is our second episode in the Cult of the Manager. And we'll just start from a quote from the manager, uh, probably widely regarded as one of the greatest managers of all time. The, I invented Catanaccio. The problem is that most of the ones who copied me, copied me wrongly. They forgot to include the attacking principles that my Catanaccio included. Helenio Herrera. He's one of my favorites. So what we'll talk about today, um, this is early playing career, which didn't last very long due to a, a pretty significant knee injury. It's funny, Although, yeah. It's funny how the, the best coaches were like lousy players. <laughs> well, that's not that's not going to bode well for Thierry Henry at Monaco. Though. No, yeah, it, it, could, it could be, you know. Uh, he spent a year as a as a player manager at uh, at one point. Um, to finally his time uh, as a manager. From there, we'll get into kind of uh, his tactics, his personality. Because let's face it, he is a he was a he was a big personality at the at the same time. Yep. Um, so Herrera was born in Buenos Aires to Spanish parents. Uh, his mother was a cleaner. His father was a carpenter. Um, but they were exiled anarchists from Andalusia. Uh, in 1920. Uh, they moved to Casablanca in search of a better life, and it's here that Herrera started his career as a footballer. Uh, Herrera was a central defender, had a playing career that spanned through numerous French teams. He started at RC Casablanca, moved to CS CASG Paris, uh, played at Stade Francais, FCO Charleville, and Excelsior Rubia. Uh, during the war, he played uh, five years between Red Star Paris uh, more time at Stade Francais, and lastly to Puteaux, uh, where in 1944 he took over as player manager. Uh, he retired in 1945 without any major success as a as a player, though he did appear for the national team twice. Yeah, um, but it was really his managing career that brought him major success, uh, which coincided with the early beginnings of of what we understand the UEFA competitions. It was, usually, it was called the Fairest Cup back then, right? Where just basically, the, they, it was only clubs where uh, the European fairs were held. Or I think it was some kind of farming fair, if I'm correct. Yeah. So after one season at Puteaux, uh, he rejoined Stade Francais for a third time. Uh, after three years without winning a trophy, the ownership said, well, we're just going to sell the club. Uh, and it's here where he moves on to Spain, where he starts to really see success. Uh, so he spent six, the next six-ish seasons uh, managing at uh, Real Valladolid, at Atletico Madrid, won the league twice in 1950 and 1951, uh, City Malaga, uh, Deportivo La Coruña, and Sevilla. From there, uh, he moved on to Portugal, where he spent two seasons with OS Belenenses. After this short tenure, he returned to Spain, where he managed FC Barcelona for two seasons, Again, winning Title. the league twice. Yeah, uh, with some good players on that squad, if I remember correctly. There were a lot of good players, but there were difficulties. Yeah. That, uh, again, things that uh, that we talked about last week with Hutman, uh, it seems that Herrera ra ran into some of the the <laughs> same same issues, uh, especially at this time because he was there when the Di Stefano yeah. issue went and he had down. Kubala were there was uh, was at Barcelona at the time so it was like you know it was an interesting time to be coaching I, I, I think well and there were rumors that Kubala was the reason yeah. that he left and they had the old Latin cup 
and uh, Milan was very tough during those years. Uh, it was it was actually a really interesting. I mean, one of those moments, kind of like where you can kind of parallel uh, now with so many interesting, innovative things happening in different places. The same was happening in Europe around the same time. And uh, uh, you can see it like in different countries. And at that time too, right, you also had the rise of, of the football of, of, uh, of the Danubian school and uh, Huchman himself, right? Yeah, so there were great teams playing at this time yeah. across Europe. Yes, there was. Um, and a lot of really innovative tactical changes were happening. Yeah. Um, however, his greatest successes came with the Grande Inter team during uh, this, this, this period. So he stayed with Inter for about eight seasons. So he moved to Italy in 1960 to manage Inter, where he won three Serie A titles and two European championships. So it's here where he modified the 5-3-2 Veru formation, also known as the door bolt yeah. formation, to create larger flexibility in counterattacking. And thus, Catenaccio, as we know it now, was born. There's an important footnote that has to be placed here. Okay, and you know uh, how Juventus always has the charge of corruption and match fixing and favoritism leveled at them. Inter at that time had the same same issues and uh, was notoriously known for uh, bribing all sorts of officials during that moment too. So this has to be kind of like you know couched in there because we we must be fair, you know. So now he during his time at Inter, he also spent time as national team manager of Italy, but he also spent some time coaching the Spanish, like working with the Spanish yeah. national team as well. Um, did anything significant come out of that? time of him being with the Italian national team? No, not really. Uh, it, it would have been interesting to see him spend a little bit longer. Uh, back in those days, you know, uh, international managers for uh, 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 the national teams or national teams was really unheard of. Like it, it was not kind of like it was frowned upon to have uh, an Argentine coaching the national team, although they didn't have any problem, you know, repatriating players from Argentina. But, uh, you know, usually it was like, you know, you know, Dutch Dutch coach for a Dutch team, Italian coach for the Italian team and so on and so on and so forth. So it was kind of a he was kind of ahead of his time on this. Um, in 1968, Herrera moved to Roma, became the highest paid manager in the world uh, at the time. Uh, contract rumored to be about 150,000 euro per year. Contrast that with Hoodman just asking for vegetable to be paid in vegetables. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, this is uh, uh, that's an astronomical amount for the time. So it's here. So he won the Coppa Italia in his first season, but uh, from there his relationship soured with club president uh, Alvaro Marchini. Marchini, yeah. Uh, after the death of centre forward uh, Giuliano Tacola in the dressing room at an away game against Cagliari, uh, there are rumours, different rumours, as to why uh, Tacola died, as he had been very sick. He had pneumonia leading up to the to the fixture. Um, and the official cause of death was ruled to be heart failure due to pneumonia. Um, so, however, uh, Herrera had been aware of uh, the illness that Tacola had been facing and yet was still playing him. Uh, and as we'll talk about later, um, played to their fullest and pushed uh, probably beyond the limits of what they should be playing. This definitely speaks to how... Uh, Herrera demanded everything from his players, reportedly being quoted as saying, he who does not give his all gives nothing. Yeah. Um, 
in 2004, uh, Ferruccio Mazzola gave an interview that Tacola was a victim of performance-enhancing drugs, uh, something that Herrera had been accused of widespread use amongst his players and teams. Well, this is a long story in football. I mean, this is not – I mean, uh, everybody thinks that this is a kind of a modern invention, but this kind of existed uh, – I mean, it's, it's a strain that runs through football uh, all the time. Uh, and it's actually something interesting in Italian football. Uh, I mean, even in the nineties, the reports that came out of like Juventus, as uh, Dan Examen used to refer to his Juventus as La Pharmacy. And, uh, I mean, you know, uh, drug testing uh, is something that should be, uh, much more rigorous than it really is. Uh, uh but it, they still do it. You know, it, there's the point is, is there's a tradition of this. Uh, so after this, uh, Herrera returned to Inter for one season, uh, took a break for a few years after suffering a heart attack, uh, where he returned to coach uh, Remini yeah. and Barcelona, where he finally retired in 1981. So it's it's really not only Captain Nacho comes out of Herrera, but really it's the influences on a bunch of different things and, and how this has filtered down to so many different managers uh, throughout history. Um, so he pioneered the use of psychological motivating skills. So his pep talk quotes and phrases are still quoted today. As we said, he who doesn't give his all gives nothing. Uh, with with 10, our team plays better than with 11. Um, and class plus preparation plus intelligence plus athleticism equals championships. Um, these slogans were often plastered on billboards around the grounds and chanted by players during training sessions. Yeah, you can even hear it, it comes out today. We've been with Conte, you know, Conte. What did he say? He goes, I want my players to taste their own blood, you know. Uh, and so, you, you know, it's one of those themes. It's like, you know, it's kind of like the code in hockey, you know, it still exists, right? Uh, he also enforced a very strict disciplinary code uh, for the first time. Um, reported at least, forbidding players to drink or smoke and controlling their diet, something that we saw when Wenger came to to Arsenal. So there's yeah. another level of influence. Uh, once even at Inter, he suspended a player after telling the press, we came to play in Rome, not we came to win in Rome. Uh, he also sent club personnel to players' homes during the week to perform bed checks. Um, he also introduced the Retiro. Uh, it's a pre-match remote country hotel retreat that started with the collection of players on Thursdays to prepare to prepare for a Sunday game. Uh, during his Barcelona days, Herrera had found a book on mysticism, which contained details about the physical exercises from the 16th century. And this gave him the idea of football retreats. Um, as mentioned earlier, uh, Herrera became the first of something again when he introduced these retreats in football. And uh, for the first time, uh, players were sent for relaxing their time in green, serene places to attain peace within. Well, you know, there's there there is a precursor to this. That was Vittorio Pozzo, uh, the national team of the 1920s and 30s in Italy. And Pozzo used to do the same kind of thing in terms of ritiro, as they would say, where basically the players would be secluded and seconded from everybody. And uh, Pozzo actually, the rumor was that Pozzo would actually open their mail. Okay, as they would receive letters from their wives and so on and so forth, because and he would he would basically, I mean, the authoritarian that he was, uh, or some might even say he was a supporter of fascism, uh, you know, uh, this kind of connection to kind of like monitoring the lives. He like you know, if people had like you know domestic troubles, he wouldn't even play them. And you can see Herrera actually kind of taking that same kind of mentality, right? Yeah, uh, he also 
possessed a very intuitive understanding of his players' psyches. Uh, during one tour, according to Sidlow, yeah. uh, when, uh, I can't pronounce that. Chibor. Uh, Chibor bemoaned having to stay away from home for so long. He promised him that he could go back if he scored three goals on the tour. He hit a hat trick in the first match. <laughs> uh, he used to say, uh, to the Catalans I talked, colors of Catalonia, play for your nation. And to the foreigners, I talked money. Seems pretty appropriate, given kind of, the situation we find ourselves in now. Yeah, of course. Um, he also told uh, Simon Cooper in his book, Soccer Against the Enemy, how the world's most popular sport starts and fuels revolutions and keeps dictators in power. I talked about their wives and kids. You had 25 players. You don't say the same thing to everyone. Uh, Anthony Ramelitz, the goalkeeper, told Lowe, uh, he had files and everything. He could tell you about the parents of some Italian or German, what day he was born, everything. Yeah, he was the first guy to keep like meticulously scouting reports. And yeah. to me, this this goes back to something in Sir Alex Ferguson's biography, where he talks about there were certain players he could be hard with, but then you'd have a player like Nanny, where he knew you'd just destroy yeah. the psyche of a player immediately if you were if you were hard on them. Uh, he was also one of the first managers to call in the support of the 12th player, so the spectators. Now, indirectly, this led to the appearance of the first ultras movement in the late 60s. Uh, while defensive in nature, his understanding of the Catanaccio was slightly different from that practiced by other Italian teams in the original Viru, uh, as he often used the fullbacks, uh, particularly Giacinto Facchetti, as halfbacks. So they were defensively supported by the Libero to launch fast counterattacks, a staple of Italian tactics, yet he never denied the heart of his team relied on defense. Yeah, the Libero was a, a really decent invention. You know, what we call the sweeper uh, it was like, you know, that was kind of his innovation in the game, right? When he brought it, I mean, which was then perfected by Franz Beckenbauer, you know, Beckenbauer, like, you know, would go forward. And, and uh, I mean, that's something I really miss in the game of football today was when you had a guy who would run back from almost the center back position and attack in the forwards and then come back. Very, very interesting concept to revolutionize the game. I, I just want to add though, that, I mean, I think the best we saw this come out later, uh, maybe it might be a little bit premature to introduce this, but the best version of, I, I would say, Catanacho in Herrera style came in the 1982 uh, uh, World Cup winning side in Italy uh, under Enzo Berezot. But the, if you remember, for those of you who do remember or old enough, the opening round, Italy drew every game, okay? They did not win a game in the opening round, and they were very lucky to qualify. And then they were drawn in a second group because the World Cup didn't have a knockout stage. They would go to a second group. And because of their poor performance, they met Brazil, Aftala Santana, and Argentina with the young Maradona. And boom, that's when we saw this counterattacking style at its finest, I, I would say. So he said, while he may not have started the trend of playing pragmatic and defensive football, I don't, I don't think the term anti-football is right because football yeah. is still being played. Exactly. Uh, he definitely laid the foundations for its success that brought widespread acclaim uh, to, to this approach. Um, the, but the tactic of using extra men in defense was actually started by Carl Rappin uh, in his time at Servette. Uh, he experimented with the tactics in a club that was effectively just fighting for survival at that yeah. time. Uh, and in such a case, it's necessary. You have to stop leaking goals. 
Um, however, he later achieved great success when he applied this uh, same tactic maneuver um, in his time as the Swiss national team coach in the 1930s. Which was very good. Yeah. Even so, uh, he wasn't even the first manager to play this style in Italy. Uh, rather, it was a uh, Salernitana manager, Giuseppe Viani, who achieved success of some sort using these tactics ever after having overseen his side to a promotion, Right, which makes a lot of sense. We're seeing teams that, you know, were very attacking in their, in the division they were in, they get promoted. They're having a really hard time. Fulham being a very good example of this. Big Sam Allardyce, man. I mean, you know, you see these guys coming in now, you know, the caretaker managers and, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, again, a theme that goes way back. You know, I mean, these things have tradition, right, of bringing in, you know, with shouldering up the defense or parking the bus, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and this inspired others, especially Nero Rocco, to use the system at your AC Milan. Uh, and they landed a European Cup under him in 1963. Playing the very same style. Now, it was it was just del- really delaying the inevitable as La Grande Inter became the hottest topic around Europe for the next few years. Until uh, Celtic handed them that defeat. And we'll get to that. Um so Herrera's standard formation at Inter was the 5-3-2 system, which almost always included a sweeper, usually the team's captain, Armando Picci, Picci? Picci. Uh, as well as uh, four-man marking defenders. He was openly dismissive of teams that had an obsession for dominating ball possession, declaring that the ball always moves further and more quickly when there isn't a player behind it. Sounds familiar? Your man. Yes, but Your man. it was, it, and it's interesting that he talks about that because he 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 did manage at a Barcelona team that was very fluid in their attacking, yeah. like and and did carry the ball. Yeah. Um. So well, I mean, what we see is that we see the beginning of managers managing players how to play when they don't have the ball, which is you know becomes just as important, right? So although Herrera's Barcelona side was known for playing this fluid attacking brand of football. His pragmatic uh, Catanacho tactics at Inter were often criticized for producing few goals, being dull, overly defensive, or even destructive. Uh, Herrera and several of Inter's players at that time refuted these claims, with Herrera later stating, uh, as we said, the problem is that most of those who copied me copied me wrongly. Um, I had Pichi as a sweeper, yes, but I also had Facchetti, the first fullback to score as many goals as a forward. Yeah. But, you know, this is not fair because we see wing-back football in Brazil. And, you know, uh, you know uh, we, uh, you know, and it's interesting because Jair, who was a great Brazilian wing-back, was one of Herrera's wing-backs at Inter during that time, right? Um, aside from the team's defensive strength and organization of defending behind the ball, some of the key emulents of uh, Herrera's grande Inter side of the 60s were the use of vertical football and very quick, efficient counterattacks, which allowed the team to score with few touches. Uh, this was made possible due to his use of very quick and energetic attacking fullbacks, such as Facchetti and, uh, and Bergnich. Yeah, Tarquizio is his first name, Tarquizio. Uh, who would often detach themselves from the back line and catch their opponents by surprise with their overlapping runs. Furthermore, the team's main creative force, and possibly the greatest Spanish player of all time, uh, in Luis Suarez. Wait, Xavi? <laughs> I'm sorry, but anyways, go ahead. Uh, played a fundamental part in Inter's success during this period. Well, Suarez did win a Ballon d'Or, and he's the only Spanish player. To and at a time, and at a time when uh, uh, there was like a tremendous amount of players to choose from. Yeah. Um, 
And he was fundamental to Inter's success during this period due to outstanding work rate, technical skills, vision, and passing range. Intelligence. Oh, Javi. Yeah, sounds familiar. Uh, these attributes enabled him to aid the team to win back possession and then subsequently launch quick attacks with accurate long balls out onto the on-running fullbacks who would often go on to either score or assist the strikers. Sound familiar of English football in general? Yes, it does. Uh, so... After successive European Cups in 64 and 65, uh, Helenio Herrera's Catenaccio style of play suffered a massive blow in the 1967 final in Lisbon. Uh, and this is when they came up against Scottish champion Celtic of Glasgow, who uh, nicknamed the Lisbon Lions, consisted of a group of players who were all born within 30 miles of Celtic Park. And you know what's really important to know, right? Those guys on that Celtic team, okay, were what we would affectionately called part-timers. They actually had full-time jobs during the day and then played for Celtic uh, in their spare time. They were, they were professionals, but they had day jobs at the time. So it's really quite an accomplishment for a football squad. Uh, Celtic, so Celtic won that game 2-1 after coming back from a seventh-minute uh, Mazzola penalty uh, with many pundits, including the famous Bill Shankly, uh, claiming this was a victory for football against a defensively destructive Catanacho. Uh, it's even said that uh, Beachy asked the goalkeeper, goalkeeper Sarti to let the ball go in after a point during the match, claiming that it was pointless to keep defending and that Celtic would eventually score. Uh, the players were left in disbelief that Beachy himself was saying this, but this was the mental agony that <laughs> players seemed to undergo in order to comply with the demands of Herrera, yeah. something you see with players and managers today. Particularly Mourinho. You know, I mean, you see the same thing. I mean, Pep Guardiola has the same thing. I mean, this idea, like, again, we go back where the manager is the focal point of the club. Well, that's what I'm saying. The tactics might not be matched by a lot of these different managers, but a lot of managers stylistically... Uh, in terms of how they act with their players, a lot of that comes out of Herrera, maybe Chapman a little bit, but really this is like this is the cult of the manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the guy. I mean, like, I mean, we can talk about Hutman, but but Herrera basically takes it to the next level, and um, you know, I mean, again, and his influence is is, is tremendous. I mean, particularly in Southern Euro European football, like uh, the Spanish adopt a lot of his stuff. Uh, the Italians adopt a lot of his stuff. Uh, particularly Italians, it becomes it, it becomes part of the fabric of their game, right? I remember um, in the two thousand Euro. Uh, I think it was in, in, in the Italian team when they played uh, the Dutch in the semifinal because they ended up against against uh, France in that final, and uh, the Italian team just like sat back and like I mean defended and defended and defended. But they had Maldini, uh, Baresi was gone by this point. They had all these great Italian defenders, and I'll never forget the announcer saying. You get the feeling the Italians enjoy being on their back foot and defending because there was so much of that. And, and I, I would add that I think that one of the great Catanaccio sides was the, also the 1970 World Cup squad uh, of Italy that went to the final against Brazil. 
And uh, yeah, they met an extraordinary Brazilian squad. They just dismantled them. But people keep forgetting that they had played a semifinal four days previous to that against Germany, which ended 4-3 and had gone into extra time. And I believe there was five goals or four goals scored in the extra time period of 15 and 15. They were exhausted. And uh, that idea of just sitting back and absorbing the pressure, you could see that it just, it only goes so far, right? Now, tactically speaking, how, are there any managers that you think, especially with this idea of the 5-3-2? Nobody plays that anymore. No. Now, I would say Conte did with the national team yeah. when, when he was there, and it worked yeah. to an extent. Um, I think, now, is it because the managers are just choosing not to play that style, or is it because, really, it, we've had the death of, of the defender? Well, nobody's producing defenders anymore. But like, and uh, the worst among them is the Italians. Well, and Cannavaro. I remember Cannavaro had an interview about this. Where now, when anybody goes to, well, nobody plays in the street anymore. More exactly. But when you play in the street, nobody wants to be a defender because well, you want to be the one who scores the goals. It's funny you say this because this kind of idea, right, of defending. Uh, and, uh, and attacking football has permeated the culture of football nowadays. This is what I call the track star, the advent of the track star. And, you know, I, I used to play a pickup game here at the Y, okay? And it was really interesting to watch, right? Because, you know, I was a lot older than most of the people that were playing there. And, you know, I come from the, the – I was pretty much schooled in the philosophy of let the ball do the running as opposed to you doing the running. And, uh, you know, when you play with these guys, uh, which was like a variety of like it was like a league of nations like the united nations of where i played it was unbelievable like extraordinarily multicultural but not one of them except for me and another guy and guess what he was also he was in his 40s and he was also italian when we sit back everybody just attacked it was like basketball going boom 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 everybody running forward and i think that yeah this is a sadness to me that and, and i i i hope I was going to say predict, but I think I'd be wrong in predicting. But I hope we see a return. And I actually think that the one manager that comes back and plays a 5-3-2 again, okay, but this time, you know, let's be clear here. Wing backs are going from touchline to touchline, okay? Yeah. So they, Conte, Conte yeah. did it at Chelsea to relative success, especially when Alonso came in and you had, um, who was the, I think it's the Nigerian on the other, was playing as the other wing back and not as Piliqueta. Uh, uh, Moses. Moses. Yeah, yeah. So it worked. But back to the Hutton side of it, a couple of seasons. That's it. I mean, you could, like, if you, the way the game is now, if you're going to play that 5-3-2, you're going to burn out your wing backs. You're going to burn them right up because they're going to basically have to run. Like I, I remember that game in uh, the last year, European finals uh, uh, when Italy played Germany. Darmian, I thought, was going to die on the field. Okay, He was running, and I, was, I, I could not get over the amount of running that he was doing. But I do believe that if a manager comes back and actually is able to get some Really good defenders, particularly the three center backs. Okay, uh, and we could see a return to this style. I mean, because I think that the manager that chooses this and is going to be going to be able to employ it with the right personnel will begin the process of the cycle of this attacking football ending. 
like, you know, there's Pep Guardiola, Tikitaka. This is why I have a real, real soft spot for Mourinho's tactics. Okay, Mourinho is also a kind of a character like like Herrera, demanding this kind of like adherence to this system, adherence to this kind of defensive philosophy, how to play without the ball. But I kind of really appreciate that he likes the idea of winning a game one nothing, right? Which most Italians of the of the sixties and seventies and eighties and even the nineties would say that that was the perfect match to win a game one nothing. Well, you have to remember who like after Herrera and. I don't know Inter's history very well. Success after Herrera, they they obviously still had success because it was the 60s. So they, they had a, probably some success throughout those years, although Milan, like your Milan, was much more successful in that Yeah, but they, and, and there's a footnote there because they also defended really well. That Milan team, which was had Hulik Van Bastion and Rijkaard, they could score like three, four goals in a match. But however... They also had Costa Corta, Baresi, Maldini. Uh, you know, that team, uh, in terms of defending, was just tremendous. And, yeah. and, and Carlo Ancelotti is a defensive midfielder, too. Right? Yeah, well, and remember, Mourinho at Inter, same thing. Yeah. Look at the players that he had in that team. But, you know, we're, we're, we're forgetting a really important guy here, okay, uh, who's in the game today, who I would say is perhaps even closer to Helena Herrera's kind of philosophy than Mourinho, and that's Diego Simeone, El Cholo at, uh, at Atletico Madrid. Adherence to a system, I, I, would, I would agree with you, yeah. That's grounded in defending. And I would say he has the two best defenders in the world right now, in Jimenez and Godin, who are both Uruguayan. It makes it it makes it. It helps definitely that they're the same nationality. Yeah. But but it, this is important to point out. Uruguay has a strong, strong history of being in South America one of the most defensive-minded kind of football cultures out there, right? And they also play with that quick counterattack and they punish you, right? And if you look at Uruguay's history in terms of the managers that were there at the time, and you know, you can see this kind of like you know these kind of ideas still swirling around in there too, right? So I mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, kudos to Cholo, right? And uh, this is the thing, and I think this is what you're kind of hedging at, is that I, I would like to see more defenders such as Jimenez and uh, 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 Godin. And I think, you know, the English team, you know, they're, they're producing these kind of guys now, and, and I think this is kind of important. Right? Well, and they're, I think the closest thing to me, actually, um, is is what has gone on at Juve. Juve under Conte, it's changed a little bit yeah. under Allegri, Allegri. But like, let's look at the wing backs that like he played Douglas Costa as a wing back. Yeah, and you had Alexandro on the other side, and you had the the BBC supposedly. But this 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 kind of this kind of bothers me because I don't see Kellini. I mean, it's amazing to listen to a lot of these football pundits, particularly on this side of the pond, refer to this Kalini as being this extraordinary defender. Kalini is okay, but Kalini is not in the same league as Bergomi, uh, as uh, Maldini, Maldini. Uh, as uh, you know, the, with the height of the Italian defenders. You think of Shirea, uh 
in, in the in the 80 team who was a kind of a sweeper attacker defender uh you think of like those guys that, that were on that uh, Claudio Gentile you know who's a hard man i mean who like just he was crazy but those guys could suck space away from attackers like you could never see we don't see these guys but they anymore. were org- but that's the thing about that Juve backline was the organization of it and yeah. you had Buffon who kept that line really yeah. well organized and it just worked that they were all Italian and it definitely helped to translate success to the national team. The defender I actually see also a lot in this mold uh, that comes to my mind uh, is, uh, my God, I don't know why his name escapes me, but uh, Arsenal Hardman, the centre-back. Um, Tony Adams? Tony Adams, yeah, man. Tony Adams had the same kind of philosophy. I mean, it definitely came from a different place, you know, in terms of that. But he kind of also was a kind of a defender that I think would play really well in the defensive system. It's interesting, right? Because, wait a that now it makes sense now that I say this. Don't forget, Arsenal used to be known as Arsenal, right? And under George Crayon, that was their that was the style. It was like defensive, trapping, shutting down. And Tony Adams came out of that system, right? So maybe it's not as much as uh, uh, you know a, a stretch as you're as, 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 as saying. As they, yeah. Well, and uh, there are defenders who are good with the ball at their feet. And defenders like we had probably two of the best in Ferdinand and and Vidic in that type of partnership at that time absolutely that, that really yeah. worked where Ferdinand would run and yeah. he would go up and down the pitch right and he would usually Scholes or Keane or whoever would would kind of drop off yeah um, it's too bad Ferdinand didn't take up coaching I'd be curious to see where he you know like I think actually it's interesting because I think he would have made a decent coach. Uh, had he applied himself and been very, very, very serious about it. I actually think that the, the, the guys who play defense and then become coaches or defensive midfielders, I think they actually... So you think John Terry could end up having success? Look, I mean, look, there is... I, I, I have nothing I, good to say. I'm about sorry. I, I'm trying to make sure that I say something without profanity here. I have nothing good to say about John Terry as a human being. Okay, uh, he was I, a good defender. He damn it, he lot. did his job, man. He did his job. And, and Mind you, my favorite that. memory is him slipping mm-hmm. on that Champions League penalty. Is probably the best thing in the world. I think that that's that's karma. Yeah. Karma's a real bitch, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Anelka missing. Yeah. Or, or Van der Sar saving the penalty against Anelka, which was... Which but, you know, I mean, like, this is this is the thing, right? I mean, defenders are a lost art, and I think that Helenio Herrera kind of harkens back to that. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I will end off repeating what I said earlier. The the manager that comes, and I, and, I, and I see a time of it happening, that comes back and brings these things back into the game and, and is able to kind of relay that message to the players. Okay, I think that that's you'll see success, and this is where my critique of Mourinho comes in. Right, Mourinho's done it. He's done it. He did it with Porto. He did it with Inter, and I would even say he even did it with Real Madrid. Oh, he did yeah. it with Chelsea twice. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. I, I, I was. I, I, I. How could I forget that? The terrible. But I, I, I would say that this is the problem he's having. You know, Mourinho is not a likable guy. Okay, and if Mourinho was able is able to get like I, I don't think he's getting these guys on board, and if he gets these guys on board, it makes a huge difference. I think he has some of them, but you need it's a team like Matic for sure. Is it, 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 maybe is, yeah. may, maybe Mourinho needs to say we will play better with ten than we will with eleven. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my solution is sell Pogba, sell Martial. And with the uh, money, Mar and with the money you get, get the players. Well, you got Rashford, man. Yeah, and, but Martial, to me, after the last two weeks, uh, I think he's, he's, he's responding. Yeah. And I think like, the fans want, the fans love him. Mourinho, for some reason, supporters at United still love this guy. I, me being one of them, um, because I don't think, all of the problem lies at the foot of the manager, but I never think all of the problem relies at the foot of the manager. Yeah. There are, there are always external issues that, that, that go there. And Hutman, you know, great example of, you know, maybe just a manager not working well with ownership, maybe not so much with yeah. players. Well, this is, this is, I, I you know, I, I, I want to add that one, another point, sorry. And before, you know, we're stretching this a little bit longer than we thought we would, but I just want to say, this is why I want Atleti to win Spain this year. Okay, and at the same time, I hey, if they could get a Champions League out of the deal, that would be better. But they're winning; they, they've won the Europa Cup, but twice in four years, something like that. Something like that. You know, I want to see him win because you know why? It's a triumph for this kind no, of. No, they've won one. So what happened was they've been to a fi the final twice, yeah, and they won the Europa League. Interesting, though, right? Like, I mean, why? Well, Spanish teams have been dominating European competition for. Yeah, but the last this is, 10 years. This is an interesting thing that comes out of these discussions, right? Okay. You know, usually when a certain style wins, other teams copy that, copy style. that style, right? Now, look at the success uh, Cholo has had at Madrid, okay? And nobody's... And nobody's nobody's taken on... His, like, the guy has made it to the... How many Champions League finals? Three or four. Three, yeah. And he's, he's won the, European, the Europa Cup twice. One. No, I think he won it twice. I think you won it with when Forlan was there, if I'm correct. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Right, so right. that's several years back, okay? Yeah, that's a while. Yeah, yeah. and he's won he's won the, the La Liga, okay? And uh, the guy has produced results and championships and trophies, and yet everybody still opts for this pep clop wide open football. Yeah. Well, and and you look too, right? Um, what was I going to say? And especially at Atletico, where players are sold. There's high player turnover at huge, huge. You can't hold on to them. They don't have the budgets that Real Madrid and Barcelona have. You know, what I mean, and he keeps turning out these championship teams all the time, or, or contenders at the yeah, very competitive, least. very yeah. competitive teams. Oh yeah, uh, maybe we 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 should add here that uh, this kind of defensive football, you know, um, requires a manager that's a real asshole. Okay, that seems to be the common stream because even with Conte, Conte's emphasis was also on this kind of defense. And like we we see, Hutman, real dick, uh, Herrera, another bit of a bastard. Okay, Mourinho, wait, maybe the, maybe the king of the mountain. Okay, and Cholo. In his in in, in yeah. his mind, he would be king of the yeah. mountain. Yeah. Cholo is a difficult guy. He, I mean, you can barely talk to him during the match. And Conte, well, Conte is an asshole. That's you know, and I think that maybe that's part of the deal here. You know what I mean? Well, we know how I feel about that hair implant cheating, Max fixing, yeah, sob. But they Mourinho said it best about him. When he called, when Conte was still at Chelsea, and Mourinho pretty much said, "At least I, uh, at least I didn't get caught cheating." Yeah. So. Yeah, caught cheating. He should have worded it a little bit differently. But, no, he's yeah. probably right. I yeah. would, I would not be surprised if 
there's I... ever been weird goings on there. Like, let's be let's be real here. <clears throat> so uh, that about does it for us. Uh, next week we'll be coming at you with. Um, we're not going to talk about a specific manager next week. So, Julian, your plan for next week for the cult of the manager is actually to talk about a specific school of managerial thought. I'm kind of obsessed lately with the Danubian school of football because it, it is, it's, it's a rather interesting facet. I mean, it, it's kind of the precursor, again, to kind of total football. And it's interesting because it was going on around the same time that in Argentina, they would play with La Machina, had their kind of things, and you know, they, they were happening. But also... You know, I, I, I want to kind of like, I, I, we'll talk about this, but I think at the same time, we're going to have this kind of hodgepodge of managers uh, that kind of existed, never really got their props, and we're kind of going kind to of introduce them. And then I think the week after that, we'll probably have a real discussion of the Google, original Google, total football. football. Yeah, with uh, Rhinus Michaels and, and Cruyff, you know. And then from there, uh, give us your thoughts. Yeah, total please. Total football or defensive football? And if you call it anti-football, you'll get blocked in the group for a week. <laughs> no, no. i Yeah, but uh, uh, we, we also wanted to let you know that we're probably in about three weeks' time, we are going to have a, a, a probably – we're trying to put together a decent roundtable discussion on uh, women's football and uh, the kind of intersections – that exist in terms of the uh, rise uh, and popularity of women's football and kind of history and the relationship uh, of women fandom and so on and so forth. So stay tuned. We're going to try to kind of keep kind of teasing out these issues. And I know a lot of you have, thought, uh, have, have come to us with thoughts of doing things on, on Shankly and Ferguson, a lot of other English and Scottish managers that will happen. Um, we're, and they'll, they'll probably get mentioned over the next couple of weeks. However, certain of those managers probably deserve a little bit more time to be devoted to them. So uh, just keep listening. Eventually, yeah. we will get to them. We have all the time in the world for them. So. And, yeah, and we'll get to you too, right? And Because yeah. uh, uh, we really want to make this participatory. And uh, tell your friends. I keep saying that. Tell your friends. Right. So that does it for us. Uh, can the ball ever continue to bounce in your favor? And uh, remember, if you break even with the referee, you've done good. Thank you. <laughs>